Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 137, Cilicia. Cilicia had long been recognised as a valuable strategic location in the Mediterranean. As far back as Xenophon, the Greeks were warned about the impassable Cilician gates which guarded the land beyond it. A warning taken seriously by Alexander the Great, who ordered a night attack on its garrison in order to drive them off. During the Roman era, Cilicia was famously home to pirates. This unique pocket of fertile land with good access to the sea, surrounded by rugged mountains, made for an ideal hideout. Those pirates, though, sailed too close to the Eternal City, and Pompey was given extraordinary powers to wipe them out. Soon enough, Cilicia was a Roman province, and would remain so for the next six centuries. It was to Cilicia that Heraclius retreated in the face of the shocking defeat at the Battle of Yarmouk. He hoped that the Amanus Mountains, the effective border with Syria, would be the front line in the new war. However, the Arabs were far harder to stop than he'd ever imagined. The Amanus proved easy to navigate, and for the next 70 years, the Roman population of Cilicia was terrorised as waves of attack and defence swept across it. Finally, put out of its misery in the build-up to the siege of 717, Cilicia became a new province of the Caliphate. Again, its fine ports made it an ideal base for raids on the Roman capital. The cities of Cilicia, Tarsus, Mopsuestia, Sisium, all became barracks towns their streets full of hostels for the annual influx of jihadis. Their mosques thronged with excitement each spring as men arrived hoping to serve their faith and make their fortune. The collapse of the caliphate changed everything. 
with central funding drying up, Cilicia was suddenly left exposed. The mighty Taurus Mountains had once stood as a barrier with the House of War. Increasingly, the rocks did little but disguise the direction of assault from the armies of Byzantium. The various emirs of Tarsus looked on with increasing desperation as the Focus family dealt one blow after another to Seyfadola. Finally, early in 964, John Zimiskis chased a portion of their army up a hill and massacred them. The Roman refusal to discuss peace was a worrying sign, but the decision of the domestic to murder helpless men in cold blood sent a klaxon blaring across the whole plain. The Romans were coming in force, and they weren't looking to negotiate. It was to be the end of Islamic Cilicia. Zimiskis retreated back to Anatolia as winter reached its peak, and when spring arrived, the emperor himself travelled out to the front line to join his general. After spending the past year in the capital, Nicephorus was keen to get back to his campaign tent. Despite the hero's welcome he'd received on taking the throne, he still wasn't confident that his new regime was secure. So he brought his new wife, Theophano, and his two adopted sons with him to Cappadocia. No counter-coups would be tolerated in his absence. Gathering his army, he crossed the mountains in summer and made for the city of Anazabas, which he'd already taken a few years earlier. He captured it and drove some of its population forward. He then marched to another city on the road to Tarsus, again driving out its citizenry. The hope was to clog Tarsus and Mopsuestia with refugees in order to weaken their ability to resist. But, as I mentioned last episode, Tarsus was formidably defended. It actually had a double circuit of defensive walls in good condition. Its garrison held firm, and Nicephorus's first assault was easily rebuffed. Seeing that he would be wasting his time, the emperor withdrew back to Romania to improve his preparations. He waited till the harvest was in, then crossed the mountains again in November. Cilicia enjoys a traditional Mediterranean climate, far warmer in winter than the harsh conditions of the Anatolian plateau. Hence why the Byzantines were able to campaign there outside of the traditional season. This time the Romans headed for Mopsuestia and put it under siege. This city was built on either side of a river and was thus well prepared to survive a blockade. One of the main bridges across that river was built by Justinian and is still there today, uh, though it's obviously been refurbished a couple of times since then. Uh, there are pictures online. As with his attack on Tarsus, Nicephorus failed to make an impression on the walls. The countryside was also short on supplies, and so Focus headed home again. 
Though these campaigns had failed to yield the desired results, they had provided valuable intelligence. Nicephorus's men had taken notes on the fortifications they were up against and the logistical needs that a prolonged siege would require. Speaking of which, as 965 dawned, Nicephorus gave orders for another long-standing Roman project to be completed. The fleet was ordered to sail for Cyprus. As you know, that island had long been under a condominium with the Caliphate, meaning that the Cypriots, still largely Roman Christians, paid tax to both sides. Though at times an unfortunate burden, as best we can tell, the island usually enjoyed a state of peaceful coexistence with the Arabs. The Muslims maintained a naval base on its shores and occasionally came looking for wood for their fleets, but otherwise left the civilians to their own devices. This cooperation was now brought to an end. Access to Cyprus could allow enemy ships to reach Cilicia, and that was unacceptable. We don't know exactly what forces were present in 965, nor which of the fragmented Islamic powers they took orders from. But what we do know is that the Romans swept in, drove them off easily, and brought Cyprus fully back into the empire. New colonists and administrators would follow in the years to come. And at the time, it was probably an unremarkable operation, simply completing the encirclement of Cilicia. However, in the wider picture, this was a big moment. It meant that the Romans had completely cleared their eastern waters of Arab opposition. After the destruction of the Cretan base, the Cilician fleet and now the few ships guarding Cyprus. Roman traders and coastal populations could once again operate without harassment, and their warships could float threateningly on the border with Syria. Nicephorus focused on the task at hand, though. He spent the spring gathering supplies, determined that this time he would not run out of food. He also wanted to take every available man with him and ensure that each division was properly led. So he called on his brother Leo to join him and John in leading the conquest. As they descended into Cilicia in summer 965, messengers were waiting, offering the submission of both Tarsus and Mopsuestia. This would be some form of negotiated settlement, and so Nicephorus told the envoys to go home. He was here to conquer. If the cities wanted to submit, then they could simply open their gates. Leo Phocas led a portion of the army to Tarsus and set up a siege. He was there to keep the emir's main force locked down, while his brother and John attempted to take Mopsuestia. The Arabs defended their town stoutly. They hurled heavy stones from the battlements and shot burning arrows at their enemy. 
but the Romans knew exactly which part of the wall to target. Adopting the same tactics which had worked at Chandax, siege engines cleared the area of defenders. Then sappers went in and dug under a section of the walls. Again, they put in wooden supports. Again, they set fire to them. Again, a section of the walls collapsed. Arab defenders stared in horror as the dust rose from the rubble. The Romans poured into the breach and began sacking the city. As I mentioned earlier, though, this was only one side of town. The Mopsuestians fled in their thousands across the bridges into the other half of the city. Enterprising defenders set fire to buildings as they went, hoping to slow the Byzantine advance. Which they did, but Nicephorus would not be halted for long. His men lined up and bloodily broke through the lines of defenders and forced their way over the walls into the other part of the city. For their bold resistance, the Mobsuestians paid dearly. Once his men had gathered sufficient booty and slaves, Nicephorus ordered them to march briskly west to Tarsus. Mobsuestia controlled the best river routes across Cilicia, and its fall isolated the emir's home city. It was now all but impossible for any relief to come their way, and when the terrible news reached him, the emir ordered his troops out for a final sortie. But Nicephorus's army were already nearby. One source tells us that the whole plain glittered from the armour of the invading force. And what followed was the occasion which Eric Magia described where the cataphract charge worked like clockwork. Before the heavy cavalry had even made contact with the enemy, their nerve was broken. The Arabs abandoned their lines and sprinted back to the city. All that was left to them now was starvation. The Romans were unlikely to attempt the dangerous double walls, but Nicephorus made it known how well supplied his men were. The situation inside the city became increasingly desperate, and negotiations for surrender began soon afterwards. On August the 16th, the deal was struck, and the gates swung open. Apparently, ships from Egypt arrived a few days later, laden with supplies, but they were too late. The population of Mopsuestia had stood and fought and suffered a sacking. The people of Tarsus gave up. They were allowed to live. As at Melitene and Theodosiopolis, they were given a choice. Convert or leave. Nicephorus was happy to offer them safe passage east to the nearest Syrian city, Antioch. A few weeks after this news made its way around the plain, every town in Cilicia offered their surrender. Cilicia, that strategic location just south of the Taurus Mountains, was reincorporated into the Byzantine Empire 250 years 
after it had been taken. Though Melitene and Theodosiopolis were trading cities, with productive plains surrounding them, they weren't huge gains for the Roman exchequer. Don't think that conquests always lead to financial gain for the empire that absorbs them. Most Byzantine expansion in the mountains had simply helped pay for the new Armenian allies who'd been brought onto the payroll. Crete was a more profitable acquisition, and certainly the removal of piracy was of great benefit. But Cilicia was on a different scale. The size of the plain is comparable to Cyprus itself, so in one year Nicephorus brought hundreds of miles of territory back into the fold. Though both would now have to support new garrisons, they would also bring plenty of other resources to the table. Not to mention, the pressure eased on towns to their rear. As we heard in the interview with John Halden, there was land in Cappadocia which had been turned to scrub and then forest during the centuries of Arab raids, which only now were brought back under cultivation. Caesarea, to take one example, was no longer the empire's main mustering ground. Most of the high command stationed there moved to Tarsus. They would doubtless be interested in purchasing some cheap Cilician land to build a new country house, let's say. As had been imperial policy for a while now, abandoned land in the new territories would be turned into imperial estates to ensure that the government received most of the new revenue. However, many highly placed persons were able to improve their portfolios considerably, something we'll talk about more next week. That same summer, another detachment of Roman troops launched an attack on Germanicia, the last surviving Hamdanid fortress on the frontier. Surprised by the assault, the city fell completing Nicephorus's sweep of the former towns of Jihad. A later Arab author imagined Nicephorus boasting to the caliph that nothing remains of your frontier except ashes. Nicephorus's image in the lands of the former caliphate is an interesting subject. No Roman leader really had a public profile in the region since Heraclius. And as you might expect, he was feared and despised. Historians, poets and clerics pour scorn on his brutality and godlessness. Their reaction is very similar to those of Byzantine authors when facing defeat three centuries earlier. Muslim victims are treated very much like Christian martyrs. As Cilician children were taken into slavery, we get tearful portraits of their grieving parents. We hear that those who died for Tarsus, and for the life of jihad it had stood for, were now being fetid in a special corner of paradise. As for the Vasilevs, it was widely feared that his ultimate goal was the conquest of Jerusalem, and the reconversion of the whole area. 
a long poem, has him announcing his intention of marching on Mecca and Baghdad in the name of Christ. Again, just like the apocalyptic Roman literature, which imagined the Arabs conquering Constantinople and then Rome. Jumping ahead slightly, when Nicephorus does die, imams will celebrate his fall in their preaching, just as Byzantine priests did on the deaths of Crum or Simeon. We'll discuss Nicephorus's actual goals, whatever they might have been, in future episodes. News of the destruction of Cilician mosques and the murder of innocent Muslims did lead to reprisals. Later in 966, the Patriarch of Jerusalem was killed by a mob who damaged parts of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And the following year, the Patriarch of Antioch was murdered on suspicion of inciting the Romans. These upheavals inadvertently aided Nicephorus in a recruitment drive he was about to launch. The decision to re-Christianize the conquered provinces was one which made sense from a Byzantine point of view. We know that most of these acquisitions are secure from Arab counterattack, but that's the gift of hindsight. At the time, the Romans lived with the very real fear that caliphal armies might one day return. To have loyal Christian populations was one way to ensure that the new cities would integrate into the Roman world. However, where were these Christians supposed to come from? Thousands of Muslims had been killed or had left. They had to be replaced, and there were only so many new colonists that could be found. Many Armenians migrated to Melitene, Cilicia, and even Crete, but they were not enough. So the emperor made contact with the patriarch of the Syrian Monophysites. Yes, the descendants of those who gave Justinian such headaches still lived across the countryside. Their leader, Yohanan VII, was interested in the offer he received. Focus said that if he moved to Melitene, then he would offer his church official toleration. This movement would doubtless lure thousands of congregants in its wake, and the wave of anti-Christian violence sweeping Syria helped fuel this movement. It seems likely that many Monophysites already lived along the road up toward Melitene. This official recognition allowed many of them to connect themselves more directly to the expanding Roman state. Within the decade, new churches and monasteries began dotting the landscape. The most intractable non-conformists in Byzantine history were creeping back into the fold. This was a significant change in culture and demography. A whole swathe of land was being de-Islamized, while the corresponding areas of Syria and Mesopotamia became more Muslim as local Christians moved west. And as the Byzantines became more of a fixture in the area, more of their religious brethren would join them. One of our best historians for the forthcoming period is an Arab Christian 
who fled Egypt because of persecution and settled in newly conquered Roman lands. Some amongst you might be wondering how these new arrivals were going to be perceived back in Constantinople, a place that had been through more than a couple of religious purges in order to create an orthodoxy pleasing to God. That's just one of a number of fun problems being stirred up by Nicephorus's reign, which we'll delve into next week. By October, Nicephorus had arrived back at the Bosphorus. He entered the city in triumph. This was what the people had expected when they'd hailed him emperor, and he delivered. Alongside the prisoners and booty were Roman battle standards taken over the centuries. One source claims that the gates of Mopsuestia and Tarsus were carried back to Constantinople and set up as permanent monuments. The celebrations at the capital lasted several days. Chariot races were held and banquets thrown. Across the empire, the mood was celebratory. There's a church in Cappadocia which survives to this day, which seems to have been decorated in honour of this event. I've put up pictures on the website and social media. The emperor and his family, along with John and his soldiers, are all featured alongside biblical scenes. But despite the conclusive quality of that summer's campaigns, the emperor did not consider his work done. In early 966, messages came from Sefatola asking for a truce and a prisoner exchange. The Romans agreed, and at Samosata in June, the two sides went through the usual procedures as men filed back and forth toward the opposing side. The Romans, of course, had many more prisoners to trade, and embarrassingly, Saif had to use his personal jewellery as collateral and send his secretary as a hostage in order to help ransom the remaining Muslim captives. Inside the Hamdanid Emirate, political chaos continued to unspool. With Roman land and naval forces hovering on the Syrian border, the local cities, particularly those on the coast, had become deeply concerned about their security. The nearest city to the firing line, as I implied, was the old Roman capital of the east, Antioch. Despite being a large, strategically important city, the early Arab conquerors had never been keen on Antioch. Its strong Christian traditions were something of an issue, but probably it was just too far from the desert. Damascus made a better capital for quick communication with the rest of the caliphate. And once Cilicia was conquered, Syria was no longer the front line. Antioch had remained a visually impressive backwater ever since, still the home to the patriarch of what remained of the eastern diocese. Inside the city, various political groups had been squabbling ever since the sack of Aleppo. 
Saif's authority was no longer recognised, and one coalition was arguing strongly that the city should make an independent deal with the Romans. A case that was greatly strengthened once the former emir of Tarsus and his entourage appeared at the gates. A letter was sent that summer offering Nicephorus suzerainty over the city. This would have been a deal similar to that enjoyed by various Armenian principalities. Uh, We will obediently do your bidding in terms of trade and defence. In exchange, we get to govern our internal affairs. However, once he got wind of this, Saif was able to get some muscle down to the city and reasserted his rule. Those who'd made the offer to Rome were imprisoned. It's likely that Nicephorus would have continued the war at some point, but, pretext in hand, he broke off negotiations with Saif and marched on Antioch. At this news, thousands of Muslim residents of the city took to the roads and left. They'd heard enough about events in Cilicia and would not risk being captured, or worse. Rather confirming that he had other targets in mind, Nicephorus stopped off at the city of Manbij en route. He'd attacked it a few years earlier, and had now discovered that they were holding a famous relic, the Keramidion. This was a tile on which Christ's features were visible. How had they got there? By contact with the Mandilion, the cloth which John Corcuas had brought to Constantinople 20 years earlier. The citizens of Manbij gladly handed the icon over in exchange for the Romans leaving. Nicephorus pushed forward, avoiding Aleppo, and arrived outside Antioch in late October. By the way, he was not unmolested on this journey through the Syrian countryside. Bedouin Arabs dogged his army for most of the journey. This was where the lessons of the preceptor text came in handy. The emperor reminded his men to maintain their square formation, defend themselves, but never chase the enemy horsemen. The Bedouin might throw spears or make the occasional charge, but there was little they could do against the massed ranks of Byzantine soldiers. Their aim was to lure angry men into the open plains in pursuit. Then, once they were isolated, to wheel around and hurt them. Once outside Antioch, Nicephorus got an eyeful of the city's impressive defences. For those of you who remember the free episode in the John Chrysostom series, I described them then. The walls swept up into neighbouring Mount Silpius, and the Orontes River ran through the city. Presumably, this circuit was still the one Justinian had thrown up in the aftermath of Khusro's sack of 541. Nevertheless, the walls were thick, and the defenders maintained their vigilance. The Vasilefs spent a week inspecting the scene before concluding that nothing could be done on this occasion. He pushed his host back into Cilicia, but he'd seen enough to know where his next target lay.
Even without doing much, the emperor was able to return to his capital in January 967, clutching another valuable relic rescued from the heathens. As long as he was on campaign, it seemed that he could do no wrong. Next time, we stay at home with the Focads and discover that the longer they remain at Constantinople, the less they can do right. <laughs>